This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks again for joining me once again. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you're listening to The Faith Experiment, and this is episode number 22. And I'm calling this episode The Bible Translation Tree. Now, in this episode, I have a great e-guide that I put together, which will summarize some of today's topic in a very visual way. So stick around to get the code word during the show. You'll need to text that code word to 0488-45311. So save that number in your phone, 0488-45311, and wait for today's code word. Now, if you're joining me for the first time, the faith experiment is about putting faith into practice. And so far on the show, I've been sharing with you my own personal journey of faith how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. And over the last few episodes, we've been exploring the theme of Bible study. Now, have you ever wondered why there are so many Bible translations? Or have you ever asked yourself, which translation is the best translation of the Bible? Well, stick around because on this episode, that is exactly what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the Bible translation tree. Now, Many times when this topic is discussed, it's often done in such a very academic way, using academic terms. And for some of us, it can be really hard to get our heads around themes like this. Now, I can remember being in seminary and when we were covering biblical languages and modern day translations, some of us left those classes with more questions than answers. And sometimes the professors, with all their wealth of information and knowledge, Well, it just seemed like a bunch of waffle, and sometimes it seemed absolutely useless to the average person on the street. But then sometimes, among all the academic terms and lengthy lectures, there were gems and nuggets of truth. And I can remember sitting in some of these classes thinking, man, people need to know this stuff, but they're not going to sit through all of this academic stuff in order to get these gems. And so I guess that's why all these years later, I try to turn what was semesters of reading and literature reports and essays and quizzes, and I try and turn it into something that's just simple and practical and understandable. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do here with these episodes on the Bible. You see, The Bible is the most important object in the Christian faith experiment. There's nothing more foundational than the Bible. Everything we do in the faith experiment is based upon the words in this book. Everything we believe in that experiment is based upon the words of this book. And so understanding the Bible is central and fundamental to the faith experiment. And so that's why I've said time and time again on the faith experiment, that simply asking how to study the Bible needs more depth, it needs more context, more understanding. We need to put down deep roots into the foundation of the Bible before we attempt to grapple with the words of these pages. This is why I'm taking a few episodes to explore this topic of Bible study. And if you've missed any of the episodes and you want to catch up on the details, then check out the Faith FM app from your app store, Or go to our website, faithfm.com.au, and just look for The Faith Experiment under the podcast section. So to recap, we first looked at the question, what is the purpose of the Bible? Because again, our answer to this question influences our approach to Bible study. And so we established that the purpose of the Bible is, from the Bible's own teaching, to serve as a living and breathing martyr or witness that testifies of who Jesus is. And Paul explains that this practically works as we spend time in the Scriptures or the Bible. Through four lenses, we are confronted with the person of Jesus. The lens of doctrine, the lens of reproof, the lens of correction, and the lens of instruction in righteousness. And through these lenses, as we come to know Jesus intimately, and by beholding Jesus through the Scripture, we are transformed into complete men and women of God. And that makes us equipped for every good work. Now, because we now know the purpose of the Bible, that it's to reveal Jesus and to transform us through that process, we turn our attention to the physical book and we we examine what the Bible is made up of, of testaments, the Old Testament looking forward to the Messiah, while the New Testament is looking back at the Messiah. 
We looked at how these testaments are divided into various categories and how chapters and verses were added hundreds of years later to, to help us with referencing and indexing of passages. But we also saw that in the light of Bible study, as useful as these things are, it's important not to limit our study to verses or to chapters, but rather to passages, because passages represent thought. And we asked ourselves the question of, well, how did we actually get the Bible? And we found out that the words that we have in the Bible started as a revelation which God desired the human race to know. These revelations could be his plans, his thoughts, his laws. Whatever it is, these revelations were through the Holy Spirit impressed upon the human mind. And we called these human minds prophets. And they would take these inspirations and they would use their own language, their own culture, their own experiences to put these into words. And these words become what we call the manuscripts of the Bible today. And this highlights the importance of understanding the time and culture of these human authors of these biblical manuscripts in order to accurately understand their intended message. And on our last episode, we examined the question of how did we end up with the 66 books of the Bible? And we found out that the Old Testament of 39 books had been established for more than 400 years before the time of Christ. And although the number of books differ when you compare the Jewish Bible to the Old Testament in the Protestant Bible, we find that this difference is only based on the way the books are divided. The stories are identical. The words are identical. In fact, the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible would be the identical thing as to what Jesus would have had in his day. And then we found out that through the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that there's no question that these words that we have are faithfully and accurately passed down through the ages, with the only differences appearing to be that of spelling of names and places, and in some cases, grammatical differences. And again, this gives us confidence that the words of the Old Testament that we have today are the same words that the apostles would have had access to, the same words that Jesus would have preached from. And when we turn our attention to how we got the 27 books of the New Testament, Despite what's become popular belief through recent best-selling books and movies, we found evidence that overwhelmingly suggests that the 27 books of the New Testament were established in the time of the living apostles. And the question of the books of the Apocrypha not being included in the New Testament can be seen in the light of the fact that the canon of Scripture was established in the lifetime of the apostles, and that each of these books, of the Apocrypha that is, either in part or in whole, they disagree in many places. They even contradict the rest of the canon of Scripture. Now, this isn't that hard to understand because at the time, there were many counterfeit documents circulating claiming to be written by various disciples and apostles, which were identified in the lifetime of the disciples as being fakes and counterfeits. I guess you could say it was kind of their fake news or misinformation of the first century. But... The issues were dealt with in the first century. And so we have confidence that as we pick up the Bible today with its 66 books, we're holding a collection of manuscripts that have been proven again and again to be copies of the original thoughts and words of these inspired men and women of God who were communicating revelations from the very mind of God. And today we're holding the same number of books that the early church had held to be the Scriptures. And the accuracy of these manuscripts has been proven to be preserved through the ages of time. And so as we pick up the Bible for the purpose of Bible study, we have clarity now on why we are studying this book. We understand that this book's been constructed with testaments and its purpose of those testaments. We know how to use the tool of chapters and verses and how not to use them. We understand the revelation of God, which is passed on to the human mind, is not direct dictation. In most cases, it's rather just impressions of thought. And as we're studying these words, we understand we need to grasp the original thought of these human authors to best comprehend the revelation that God is giving. And we have confidence that these books that we study are in fact what God designed them to be codified revelations passed on to the human race. Now, we're almost ready to start the process of actually studying the Bible. We're almost there, but not yet. There's another topic that we need to understand before we go and pick up the Bible to start studying it out. 
And that's the topic which I've already alluded to, is the topic of translations. Now, have you ever wondered why there are so many translations of the Bible or which translation is best? Well, stick around because after the break, we're going to look at translations. And don't forget to stick around to get today's code word for the e-guide on today's topic. You don't want to miss this. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 4 453 That's 4453 Or send an email to Marvelous, wonderful, infinite God Author of all that is good Faithful provider and giver of life Source of all power and love Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise Refuge of strength to the Redeemer and mighty to save He's the anchor of hope for the souls of men Gracious, compassionate, merciful God Radiant, holy delight Beautiful Father, victorious Son Source of unchangeable light Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise Refuge of strength to the end Righteous Redeemer and mighty to save He's the anchor of hope for the souls of men You are Shepherd who comes for the lost Rock of salvation, remarkable love Savior who died on the cross Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise Refuge of strength to the This is The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 22 of The Faith Experiment. I'm calling this episode The Bible Translation Tree. And coming up on today's show is the code word for an e-guide on today's topic. So on this episode, we're talking about the Bible and the study of the Bible. And probably the most common question I get asked in terms of this topic of Bible study is, which translation of the Bible should I use? Now, in the Christian community, this question, in fact, the answer to this question, can be, let's just say, a bit of a hot potato. In fact, I know pastors who refuse to answer this question because they fear the backlash of their answers. But, lucky for me, I didn't grow up as a Christian, and so I have no problem exploring this question and giving an answer to it. Now, For some of you who may not understand why this question about Bible translations is such a hot potato, it's really, well, look, essentially it comes down because it involves feelings. 
Human beings are wired to become attached to things. And when we get attached to things, it's because we develop strong feelings for things. And so for many in the Christian community, most people have developed very strong feelings for a particular translation of the Bible. And if you would appear to say or do anything that would in some way put that translation in question, well, then sometimes people can get a little bit upset with you. But once again, I didn't grow up as a Christian, so I don't have a problem exploring this question of translations. Because, as I've said to you time and time again, facts don't care about your feelings. And in an experiment with faith, facts are all that matter. Well, at least to me. So let's talk about translations. Unless you are a Hebrew or a Greek, then you are using a translation of the Bible. And so, as Christians today, it is impossible for us not to deal with the question of Bible translations, because every word that you read, every lecture on the Bible you've ever heard, all the information has come through a translation of the Bible. The Bible has been translated into many different languages, from the original Biblical Hebrew and Aramaic and the Biblical Greek. The Bible has been translated into more than 670 languages, and there's been more than 1,700 translations of the Bible. And currently, when it comes to English translations of the Bible, there's more than 450 different English translations. And so there's no end of choice for the English reader when it comes to picking up a translation of the Bible. And like any choice, people have their favorites. There's the RSV camp. There's the NLT camp, the NIV camp, the NKJV camp, and of course, the good old King James camp, and many, many, many more. But whatever camp a person is in, we need to remember that we're still dealing with translations of the Bible. And this might come to a shock to some of you, but Jesus didn't teach in English. Moses didn't write Old English. Paul didn't write in contemporary pronoun-inclusive English. Everything you are reading comes as a translation. Now, when we start looking at Bible translations, there are two things or two aspects of translation that we need to be aware of. And the first is the translation method. How was the translation done? What was the philosophy behind the translation. And the second is the translation source. What's the translation based upon? And so these are the two things we're going to look at in order to understand Bible translations and how we should use them for Bible study. Translation method and translation source. And so let's start by looking at translation methods. When you translate from any language into another language, the translation method will always sit somewhere on a continuum. What's a continuum? Think of a long horizontal line with a left and a right. On one side of this line is a translation method known as word-for-word translation, which, as the name suggests, means that as the translation is taking place, when a word is received in one language, the equivalent word is picked and used for the new language. Now, this translation method is often the most literal translation out of one language into another because it's word for word. But this method can also be very difficult for translation because many, many times there isn't a direct word in which there's an exact meaning from the original word into the new language. And oftentimes, Different languages have different grammar, which means that a word-for-word translation often doesn't exactly get across the thought that well because of the way sentences are constructed. Now, on the opposite side of this continuum, or the opposite side of our line, the translation method would be thought-for-thought. Now, a thought-for-thought method, as the name suggests, tries to take the thought of the sentence in the original language and then tries to communicate that same thought but in the new language, using whatever words, ideas, or phrases are needed in order to get across the same thought. Now, this method is often much, much easier to read because it's using language we're already familiar with. It's using sayings and images and phrases and ideas that we use every day in our native language, which is why the translator used it in order to communicate the original idea. So the upside is is that we get something very readable, something very clear. But the downside is is that we have an intermediate step of thought. 
We believe that the original text contains the original thought of the human author as inspired by the Holy Spirit. But now, with the translator, he takes that idea as best as he grasps it, and then he uses whatever words and ideas and thoughts he wants to try and reconstruct that idea in the new language, which means we're relying on the translator's grasp of the original language to accurately choose the right imagery and phrases and sayings to fit and align with the original intent. And so you can see that on both ends of the line or the continuum of translation methods, there are pros and cons. On the one side, word to word. The pro, it's generally more accurate to the original thought, but the con is it's harder to read. But on the opposite side, thought to thought, the pro is it's easier to read, but it's further away from the original thought. And remember, the goal in Bible study is to get as close as possible to the original thought in order to understand the revelation that the prophet received. Now, every translation in the English language sits somewhere along this continuum. There are translations that sit on the exact side of word for word. And there are translations that sit right on the other side, which is thought for thought. And there are a bunch of translations that sit in varying degrees between those two, hence the word continuum. So why is it important to know this? Well, because any translation you pick off the shelf will affect the accuracy and your ability in order to get the closest to the original thought of the human author. But not only that, depending on what your purpose of reading the Bible is, could also impact which translation you use. For example, if the purpose of reading the Bible is just to read the stories and be familiar with the general narrative of the stories, then the closer a translation is to the thought-for-thought thought end of the spectrum, the easier it's going to be to read. But if your purpose of a Bible translation is for the understanding of the exact teaching of the Scripture, then you'd want to use a translation that's much, much closer to a word-for-word word translation. Let's put it this way. In the days of the martyrs, they died for their faith, which was based upon the word of Scripture, which even for them, it came through translation from the original languages. Now, you want to be absolutely certain that the original thought has come through accurately into your language if you're going to potentially die for your faith, right? And so, looking at the more than 450 different English translations, there are plenty of translations that you would want to question pretty intently before being willing to die for your faith based on the words of these translations. This is why it's important to understand the translation history behind the Bible. We'll something a short break now, but when we come back, I'll continue with today's topic of Bible translations. And don't forget to stick around to get a code word for today's e-guide, which will give you visual representations of a lot of the material I'm talking about today. So I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au slash donate. Letting go of every single dream I lay each one down at your Every moment of my wandering Never changes what you see I've tried to win this war, I confess My hands are weary, I need your rest Mighty warrior, king of the fight no matter what I face, you're by my side When you don't move the mountains, I need you to move When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through When you don't give the answers, as I cry out to you I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you You know what tomorrow brings There's not a day ahead you have not seen So in all things be my life and breath 
to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen and this is episode 22 of The Faith Experiment which I'm calling The Bible Translation Tree. And coming up is today's code word for today's e-guide on this topic. Now in this episode we're talking about Bible translations and before the break I was sharing with you how that when it comes to the Bible, if you read it in English, you are dealing with a translation of the Bible. Jesus didn't teach in English, and Paul didn't write in English, and Moses certainly didn't speak Elizabethan or Shakespearean English. And so, we're having conversations about Bible translations. And as I've already said, I know it's a hot potato for many of you listening, but don't let your feelings get in the way of the facts, because facts don't care about your feelings. We are in a faith experiment. Experimenting is testing and trying to establish the facts. And our faith is based upon God's Word. And so by exploring translations, we are simply ensuring that our faith is based upon facts. Now, I said before the break that there are two things we need to concern ourselves with regarding translations. One is translation method, as in where does the translation sit on the continuum? Is it a word-for-word translation or is it a thought-for-thought translation or somewhere in between? Because this impacts how closely we can get to the original thought of the human author in our study of the Bible. Our second concern is in terms of the translation source. Now, when we talk about the Bible and Bible translations and their sources, we're talking about manuscripts and texts. Every English translation comes from what is called a text. You can think of a text as sort of a complete copy of the Bible in either the Old Testament Hebrew or the New Testament Greek. Now, each of these texts is a compilation of manuscripts, which are copies of copies of copies of copies of the very first letter which was written by an original human author or the prophet. Now, looking at the Hebrew text, probably the most famous is called the Septuagint. And this is the work that was translated from the original Hebrew manuscripts into the Greek language in 132 BC by 70 Jewish scribes, hence the name Septuagint. Now, to date, we have over 11,000 Hebrew manuscripts. These also include the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I talked about in the last episode. And these validate the accuracy of this text. And so when it comes to the Old Testament, most scholars are in agreement that what we have as a source for all of our English translations is a faithful translation of the original Hebrew text. But when it comes to the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, there's a little bit more debate. Because when it comes to translating the New Testament into English, we have Four different Greek texts to choose from. We have the Texas Receptus. We have the Westcott and Hort. We have the United Bible Society. And we have Nestle Allen. And each of these Greek texts have 
let's just say some differences between them. The debate is over which of these texts should be the basis for our English translations. Now, all of these texts are made up from more than 5,800 Greek manuscripts. And the problem arises from where these Greek manuscripts come from. You see, the manuscripts are just copies of copies of copies. We don't have the original manuscripts that were, say, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Paul. Everything we have comes from copies. But the copying process we don't have doubt about because we've seen with the Dead Sea Scrolls that there is extreme accuracy in the copying process. The problem all comes from where the Greek manuscripts come from. The manuscripts are divided into families. One's called the Alexandrian family and the other one's called the Byzantine family. And it's the differences between these two families of manuscripts that the debate comes from. You see, each of the four Greek texts that we have, they've chosen one of these two sides to base their manuscripts on. And it's these Greek texts that make up the basis of our English translations. So what's the issue between these two families of manuscripts? Well, the Byzantine family is considered the majority text because they make up just over 87% of all the known Greek manuscripts, while the Alexandrian family is known as the minority text because they make up less than 12% of all the Greek manuscripts. And so the debate is which of these two families, the majority text or the minority text, should we base our Greek text on and ultimately our English translations? To really understand why there are variations between these two families, we need to look at some of the religious and political history of the past. The first book of the New Testament that was ever written was the Gospel of Mark. Mark wrote this Gospel account based on the testimony of Peter, Jesus' disciple. Now, church tradition tells us that Mark went on to start a school in Alexandria in Egypt sometime before 68 AD. Now, this school was seen to have a very profound theological influence on the church. And over time, Alexandria attracted many great minds, many who started out as skeptics of the Christian faith, until later they were converted. You see, Alexandria was one of the centers of influence in the academic world of the first century. It's said to have contained the largest library in the world in the first century. And there were many philosophers and thinkers from all different walks of life. And perhaps this is why Mark chose Alexandria to be the site of one of the first Christian schools. But with these great minds being attracted to the school, most were not Christian to start with. And it appears that many of them may have been responsible for the introduction of many philosophical changes in the attitude towards the Bible. Today, we know Alexandria for its allegorical attitude towards the scripture. The texts were not seen as perfect historical factual accounts, but rather allegorical and at times even mystical. Now, over time, the church in Rome, which was becoming more and more prominent, began to form stronger ties with the Alexandrian school and ideology. And around the time that the school in Alexandria was started by Mark, Another school was being started as a center of influence in the northern regions of what is today Syria, in a place called Antioch. This site is famous as it's the place where the followers of Christ were first called Christians. And this school was to be the place of study of biblical theology. Now, Antioch held to the belief that the scriptures were literal and historical, And over time, due to the philosophical shift at Alexandria, these two schools drifted apart in terms of their attitudes towards the Bible. But what was even more surprising was they're drifting apart in their attitudes towards the belief of Jesus, specifically the nature of Jesus as the Christ. Another event that added to this distinctiveness between these two schools took place in 330 AD when Constantine moved the capital of Rome to Constantinople. With Constantinople becoming the capital of the empire, they formed a natural alliance with the new capital and the school at Antioch because they're in the same geographical region. Now, while Antioch retained the use of the Greek language, Rome and Alexandria moved to Latin. And ultimately, in 1054 AD, due to a number of different reasons, including theology and culture and language, the church split into the Western Church of Rome and the Eastern Greek Orthodox Church, which is how we ended up with the Alexandrian family 
and the Byzantine or Antioch family. And so, how does this play out in terms of manuscripts and Bible translations? Well, we'll pick this up after the break. Don't forget to stick around to get today's code word for the e-guide on this topic. It will give you some visuals that will really help you grasp and understand the subject. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Faith Experiment, please help us get the word out by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength. My song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving seeks, my comforter, my all in. questions about this episode, Robbie would love to hear from you. Send a text to 
the sun upon his precious skin. I will know my Savior when I come to him by the mark where the nails have been. By the mark where the nails This is the Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 22 of The Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode The Bible Translation Tree. And coming up is the code word for today's e-guide. Now, on this topic, we've been talking about the Bible and the studying of it. And on this particular episode, we're looking at the Bible translation tree. And before the break, we were looking at how the early Christian church had established two centers of influence, one in Alexandria in the northern region of Africa, and one in Antioch in what is modern-day Syria. And we saw how that the school in Alexandria over time became more and more allegorical in its attitudes towards the Bible, which basically means they treated it more mystical than literal. Whereas in Antioch, the attitude was that the Bible was a literal, accurate, and historical account of the revelations of God. And then, with the moving of the capital of Rome to Constantinople and the eventual schism in the church in 1054 AD, two families of manuscripts began to emerge, the Alexandrian family and the Byzantine family, or the Antioch family. And over time, each of these schools were creating copies and copies and copies of their manuscripts, because manuscripts don't last forever. And so, as these manuscripts developed, more and more differences between the two schools and two families started to appear. So how does this play out in terms of our manuscripts and Bible translations? Well, over the course of time, we're left with around 5,200 manuscripts, all classified as Byzantine. These make up the majority text, and these have about a 95% textual agreement with each other, which basically means if you compare all of the manuscripts in the Byzantine family with each other, they are pretty much exactly the same. The differences deal with spelling and grammar. But on the other hand, the Alexandrian family, we only have about 45 manuscripts, with a vast amount of them disagreeing among themselves. But these Alexandrian manuscripts contain the two oldest manuscripts, the Codex Vaticanus, which was found in the Vatican, and Codex Sinaiticus, which was found in Mount Sinai Monastery, and they date back to the 3rd century AD. And so, the debate is this. Do we trust the oldest manuscripts, when there are only 45 of them, and they have major differences between themselves, or do we trust the majority of manuscripts, remember there's more than 5,000 of them, which only have about 5% difference, but they're much younger. So, of the four Greek texts, three of them, Westcott and Hort, United Bible Society, and Nestle Allen have chosen the Alexandrian family, or the minority text, as the basis for their Greek manuscripts. And only the Texas Receptus has been chosen to be based upon the majority text, or the Byzantine family. And so, the stage is set for our English translations. Every English translation is based upon one of these four Greek texts. Today, All English translations since 1881 have been based upon the Greek text that come from the minority manuscripts or the Alexandrian family. These are the older manuscripts, but there's only 45 of them. And there are significant differences between these 45 manuscripts. Looking at just the differences between the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus, there are more than 3,000 differences between these two copies, which are only five years apart. Now, on the other hand, from the majority manuscripts, or the Byzantine family, only the King James Version and the New King James Version are based upon the Greek Texas Receptus. Now, when you compare the more than 5,000 majority manuscripts, the differences are just over 5%, and just about all those differences are due only to spelling and grammar. So by far, the majority manuscripts are in harmony with themselves compared to the minority manuscripts that don't even agree with themselves. And so if we compare the differences between Codex Vaticanus, which is from the minority manuscripts and which all modern English translations are based upon, and the majority texts, which the King James Version and the New King James Version are based on, we find that there are over 8,000 differences. 
there are 40 missing verses and five missing books. Now, some scholars argue that the 40 verses are not missing from the text. It's just that they were added to the minority text years later. And this is why they're not included in most of the modern translations. However, if you accept that logic, then all modern translations should also remove five books of the New Testament, which are not found in the Codex Vaticanus. The books that are missing from Codex Vaticanus are 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, the last four chapters of Hebrews, and the whole book of Revelation. And what's strange is, is that a lot of these 40 verses that are omitted from the minority text, when you compare them with the majority text, most of the differences are, surprise, surprise, in relation to the divinity of Jesus Christ and elements of the salvation process which was exactly the central issue between the two schools in the first place in the first century. So the question is, do these differences matter? Well, I would say yes, they do, and no, they don't. They definitely do matter when it comes to elements of faith. And this is, of course, the faith experiment, and our faith is based upon testing of facts, and our facts come from these manuscripts, ultimately. And so knowing these issues is very important. It does matter that we understand this. But at the same time, no, it doesn't matter that much. Even though there are differences between these two manuscript families, the vast majority of the differences are really of little to no consequence in terms of the original message. Like I said, much of the difference is spelling and grammar. However, the missing verses are a bit of a concern, especially when they deal with Jesus as God or the nature and process of salvation. And so for me, I personally prefer to stick to translations that come from the majority text. Just because we have so many of these manuscripts, more than 5,000 of them, and they date back to some 1,500 years. And the only difference between these more than 5,000 manuscripts is the differences of spelling and grammar. So when it comes to Bible study, and especially the study of doctrine, I lean more on the translations that come from the majority text rather than the translations that come from the minority text. But let me just say this. No one's going to be lost because they picked up a Bible from the minority text. And no one's going to be saved just because they picked up a Bible from the majority text. There is enough in all of these manuscripts to find salvation. But when it comes to the clear and the decisiveness and the nitty-gritty of the formula and the structure of doctrine. I want to be assured that I'm as close as possible to the original message that came through these original authors. Now, I own a range of English translations of the Bible, and I like to use all of them. Some translations are, are easier for a devotional reading, and sometimes you can get different perspectives on the same familiar stories and passages by using a whole wide range of translations. And some of the translations I have are very, very literal, and they're very hard to read, but they're very literal. I have others that are what we call paraphrases. They're nowhere near what the original writer wrote, but they expound upon the thought in modern vernacular. And so all these translations can be useful and usable, and can all point you to have a deeper understanding of who and what God is. But when it comes to the studying of the Bible, for the purpose of breaking down the text and understanding the thought. I personally prefer to stick to the translations that come from the majority text. And in today's English translations, that generally falls to a New King James or to a King James. And so let me say this. If you ask me what's the best translation of the Bible, I would ask you, for what? For reading? On the continuum, pick one that's easier to read. It may not be exactly the the word for word, but if it helps you understand, pick that. If you're looking to study, then pick one that's more on the word for word continuum. But when it comes to the terms of having a doctrinal belief based on something, then I would say make sure you're sticking closer to the manuscript family that is the majority text. That's where I prefer to stay. Now, as I mentioned top of the show, I have a great little ebook I put together on this topic. I have charts and 
lists and graphs, and I even have a translation tree for you. So you won't want to miss it. And it's really going to help you grasp some of these aspects of this topic today. If you want to get a free copy of it right there on your phone, all you need to do is take out your phone and text the code word hash FE22. That's hash FE22. Text that to 04888-45311 and the Faith FM giveaway bot will reply asking for some details and you will get the e-guide on your phone right away. So text the code word hash FE22. That's a hash or pound symbol followed by FE as in faith experiment and the number 22 as in episode 22. All with no spaces, just hash FE22. Text it to 4 Next time on The Faith Experiment, we're going to continue exploring the idea of Bible study, what it is, how it works, and a whole lot more. And don't forget to give me your feedback. I really do appreciate it. You can text your comments or questions and feedback to me on 04888-45311 or email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au. I'll catch you next week at the same time right here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment. I'll see you then. You have been listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Connect with us via text message on 04888 453 That's 0488 453 Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au and let us know what you thought of this episode.